It's all about the mindset. You know, it's about what you think about an ingredient. What do you think that is possible actually in the kitchen cooking? Like, like if you approach it like, oh, like I can't do that. That's not possible for me. Then like, you're setting up yourself for that for not making yeah. it happen. If you start off like, let's make zero waste. Let's make as much as we can. Like, let's do our best. You know, like let's try how far we can go until they take it step by step. Then you're surely gonna achieve more than if you would think about in the terms that like, oh, I can't do that, it's not possible for me. So it's always all about the mindset. It's really like that. Welcome to Food Service Matters, where we bring you cutting edge conversations with industry leaders in the food service sector. I am your host, Patrick McDermott, the CEO of Digitally. And in each episode, my guest and I will delve into the key challenges and opportunities facing the food service industry highlighting the latest trends and creating a dynamic space for discussions about the future of this sector. Join us as we explore the world of food service and discover the latest innovations and best practices that are shaping our sector. Welcome to episode three of Food Service Matters with me, Patrick McDermott. Our guest today is Wojtek V, a plant-based chef and zero food waste guru who helps food businesses around the world reduce the amount of food that they throw out. Wojtek is the author of Surplus, the food waste guide for chefs, which is the inspirational go-to book for many in the industry who want to reduce what they're putting in the bin. I'm going to talk to Wojtek about the causes of food waste, what the financial incentives are, and ask him whether we really can throw away the bins in our kitchens. I'm also going to see if he can give me some ideas about how to use those kitchen scraps I throw in my composter. Things like carrot tops. So let's get started. Foytek, good afternoon and you're very welcome to Food Service Matters. I'm delighted to have you on the podcast and look forward to telling and sharing with our listeners a bit more about you. Hi, Patrick. I'm- Good to be here. So, Wojtek, you, there, there's lots of different uh, words and phrases I could use to describe you, and all hugely positive. But in in your own words, tell me for those listeners that may not have heard of you before, how would you describe yourself? Um, I'm a zero waste and plant based chef, and I teach chefs and other people in hospitality industry about how to reduce food waste in a professional kitchen. And with your background, how did how did all this come around? I've worked in kitchens for past about 12 years I spent in the industry. And yeah, I mean, step by step, I started growing interest in a food waste and all the sustainability that oftentimes is non-existent in the restaurants. And I wanted to highlight that. So I started focusing on food waste and I really wanted to bring it to the awareness of other chefs as well. And, you know, once I got into that, it was basically that's why that's how we all started. Great, and you are an author as well of the book Surplus: The Food Waste Guide for Chefs. Tell me about Surplus and where that's all come from. So, the book itself is a guide for chefs. It's summarizes like all the things that a chef should know about how to reduce food waste in a professional kitchen. Now, it's all housed under the brand Surplus, which is the name of the restaurants I used to have. And that was like the first zero waste and vegan restaurant in the world. That was a couple of years ago. And from that, it just naturally went into creating all the other 
content and things are added food waste and how everyone can benefit from that. You're you're holding things back from me here when I can see you started a restaurant, zero food waste, zero or, or 100% vegan. But tell me where it was. Uh, a restaurant was in Cambodia. Why? Well, Cambodia is this interesting country in Southeast Asia. And I used to travel a lot about, around Southeast Asia. When I got to Cambodia, I really kind of like fell into love with that place and also the city where the restaurant was. And I thought it's like a perfect setting for a zero waste restaurant where the city was like buzzing with all the social, eco businesses and like all these sustainable ideas and etc. And I really thought that that's going to be a great place for such a restaurant. And it's also, it created like a major benefit for the locals and the employees who could find out like new ways about how to approach food and how to make it zero waste. And that even the restaurant can actually run zero waste and what does it take practically to run such a restaurant in a country that otherwise quite heavy on plastic and creating waste and make it into the exact opposite. So you decided to go to the other side of the world and uh, and then to start this new venture. Um, yeah, you know, at the time I really wasn't living in Europe much. I, I was like working seasonally and then I used to travel to Southeast Asia. Well, I always wanted to open a restaurant of my, at one point I knew that that's gonna happen. And then I was just like kind of finding a right place for that. And when I got to Cambodia, I was, it really started making sense for me. Like that would be a great place for the restaurant. So that that's where it all happened. And I'm really grateful that it happened actually there because there are some good opportunities and and also a lot of limitations that like showed me how to really push it and make it zero waste, even though it was not easy at all. And why a zero waste restaurant? Well, at that time, I was already like very much into the zero waste cooking and zero waste idea. I knew that when I open a restaurant, it will be zero waste for sure. And one of the biggest reasons for me was is to actually make it like financially very viable and very sustainable. Because for me, the sustainability starts at the financial side of the business. Because if you are not financially sustainable, then there is no environmental sustainability because you're not going to exist simple. So it was very important for me to maximize all the product that comes into the kitchen. And it was also this, uh, like, you know, like overcoming the creative boundaries that chefs have of like how to use the parts of ingredients that are normally wasted. How are we going to really maximize all edible parts of the ingredients that we are purchasing? And then it's all about also about, you know, setting an example and showing what is actually possible in the kitchen for other chefs as well. But with... You're very interesting uh, uh, line in what you say that that there is no zero in zero waste. Um, why do you say that? There is there is very rarely, if ever, there is a zero in the zero waste. So the zero waste is about trying to come as close as possible to the zero. But to making a zero in the current world that we are living, it is extremely hard, borderline, basically impossible, because you will always create some kind of waste. As soon as you turn your lights on, you are already creating waste on the other side somewhere. You're never going to maximize 100% yield of an ingredient from all of them all the time. There are going to be accidents. There are going to be suppliers who will accidentally bring you something in a plastic bag. And you will really need it, so we will have to accept it. There will be things that you're going to drop a cake, burn something on a pan, 
and things happen, you know, like there is always something and it's never about the perfectionism of actually saying like, oh, so it's not worth it because it's not actually zero, but it's about coming as close as possible to the zero because like, perfectionism is never healthy. And I learned it very fast, very soon after opening a restaurant when I literally did not have a bin in my kitchen, which was extremely challenging. And eventually I had to accept having a composting bin in my garden for all the inedible food waste. And if there was just like excess ingredients that we really did not have time and space to work with, then it had to go there, even though we limited as much as we can. But the phrase zero waste is still, we still gonna use the phrase zero waste because we're not gonna be renaming it for like 5% waste system or 10% waste cooking. You know, like it just doesn't make sense. The idea behind that whole zero waste movement and the cooking is to coming as close as possible. So it sounds like you're you're talking about a mindset, and to start off with, uh, with what's in your head, with the with I guess your language, and when you make that commitment, that 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 is then going to influence the people within your business. It's all about the mindset. You know, it's about what you think about an ingredient. What do you think that is possible actually in the kitchen cooking? Like, like if you approach it like, oh, like I can't do that. That's not possible for me. Then like, you're setting up yourself for that for not making yeah. it happen. If you start off like, let's make zero waste, let's make as much as we can, like, let's do our best, you know, like, let's try how far we can go until they take it step by step, then are you surely gonna achieve more than if you would think about in the terms that, like, oh, I can't do that, it's not possible for me. So it's always all about the mindset. It's really like there is a certain type of mindset that chefs have at the moment, mostly around the world. That we think like this is the standard of cooking. This is how we doing. This is how we do food. This is how we cook in the kitchen. Like you know, like trimmings and like only using the so-called best part of the ingredients and etc. And that like you know, like who said that is right? Like who said it's the only way? And like there is so many options. And you had an interesting uh, point when it came to uh, the suppliers. That straight away they'll supply a plastic bag or that could be plastic wrap. Um, did you did you involve them? at the very beginning as to what you are trying to achieve. Yeah, you absolutely have to. Like if you have the opportunity that you are opening a restaurant from the scratch right now, then that is the best way, the best thing that you can do to start talking to all your suppliers and distributors right away. So to see if they can accommodate your request, to see what is possible for them and to try find like find local farmers and growers and whoever that is willing to do that for you and that is very important like for the, such a small restaurant that i had i had over 30 suppliers like there was only a handful of things from each because there was only so much that i could take in bulk or to take in plastic free so i was just like going through the options so how can i make it like as zero waste as possible so back to the the, the very start because I'm 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 just fascinated by uh, what you achieved by going uh, from Europe because Slovakia yeah is your is your home uh, while you worked in the UK and across different uh, uh, countries in Europe you went to the other side of the world to start a world's first of zero waste and uh, vegan 100 vegan um, tell me in the run up to opening night um, how was that run up to the opening night yeah. Nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) We were like really short of staff and we were fully booked for the opening night. The day of the opening, I had a chef not showing up 
and like you know like not showing up and not not replying and then i had a kitchen porter not showing up so we were like three and a half people in the kitchen including all the waiters and chefs serving 30 people to a 10 course tasting menu which was 300 plates from the kitchen wow so it was rather insane thankfully we were like really prepared we really had our mise en place done so there wasn't hiccups and luckily it didn't really affect the diners in the restaurant like they couldn't really feel it but we could definitely feel it in the kitchen yeah <laughs> because there was so much going on and even though we had like kind of warm up the soft opening for a i don't know how i can't recall how many days before we actually had opened so we had like a pretty good idea of what it takes to play the dishes and to serve them but it turned out to be like really stressful i wish we would have more staff right away as we have been opening it seems to be the story of a lot of food businesses currently uh, if only we had more staff but that was no different to yourself what what year was this how long how long ago 2018 18 and um having that pressure on you i can see now that you still have hair it's not gray uh you still look relatively <laughs> it young. is gray but I'm, you can't see it here <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's a lesson i have to take i'm a bit more like a badger uh, uh so i am with the way with my gray hair but look tell me you 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 have an interesting concept as well because you started a vegan restaurant but you, am i correct in saying you're not vegan i wouldn't call myself vegan mostly vegan mm. Hmm. But definitely not vegan, since vegan means that there is no animal products whatsoever. And I don't feel that concept. Yeah, yeah. But you, you have the more of the, again, going back to mindset that meat should be there to complement vegetables uh, rather than vegetables there to complement the meat. Yeah, definitely. And um, one thing I would also add is that the restaurant was not meant to be vegan from the beginning. It was, it was always meant to be zero waste, but it just happened to be vegan because of the unavailability of the products in Cambodia. So I was like, all right, let's take it as a challenge and let's make it vegan. And then ever since, I only cook vegan professionally. When I prepare any food or do any pop-ups and tasting menus, then it's always vegan. In my personal life, our household is vegan, but I might go out or I might go somewhere. Recently, I was on an airplane and there wasn't a special food request possible and there was only chicken and that was on an eight hour flight so i gotta have the chicken like you know like i'm not bothered if if i have to have it or if there is an option for me to really choose when i go out and i know they're going to a good quality restaurants when they have a high quality organic local products i'm certainly not bothered to have a piece of meat or some different animal product and i think that that's how it should be treated it's less but more Rather than eating meat every day, that is a cheap quality meat from supermarket, I don't think it's really worth it. I would rather have it once a week or even once a month, but I know that it's really the best that I can get and I can actually afford it because I didn't have it for a week now, so I can have it today and I will really enjoy that. And tell me, to bring this back even even further, you were an, an apprentice chef all those, those years ago and what would be the key learnings from that time that's brought you from where you when you started off in the hospitality sector originally to to today, what would be the key learnings? From my personal experiences, for me, it was very important that I got to. Learn, I've, I was uh, looking back, but let's face it, looking back, 
I was lucky to work with the chefs that I had to work with. I mean, head chefs and executive chefs. At the time when I was working with them, I didn't see it as I'm lucky because they were extremely harsh and extremely disciplined. And that turned out to be a really great thing for me professionally because I got to learn a great system in the kitchen to work clean and neat and fast and keep a good system and be very disciplined in the kitchen. And that was very hard at the time for me to go through as an apprentice chef. I did not like it at all. But years later, when I look back, I'm very grateful to have that experience because I can, I'm able to work very fast and clean and in an organized way in the kitchen. And that is extremely important feature because if you are working in, on a past or if you are working in a business restaurant, then you might be a very good cook and cook very good food. But if you're going to be constantly thinking in a service, then you're just not going to be getting to the customer. Yeah. And was there, from working with uh, some individuals, uh, there is an element here that when it came to food waste that you developed a serious respect for that. Was that before you started in, in food service or was it um, during that time? Like the, the more my interest in food waste and any of the food in general, it only came later. I really like when I start. I'm st I studied as a chef in a college, and basically the chef, working as a chef is the only thing I've ever done in my life. But I did not like it right away. It wasn't like, oh my God, I love food and I want to do this. But it, it, like, it kind of like stick to me later on when I got always like step by step, I had the chance to work in a better and better restaurants and better and better kitchens. And only then I got it like, okay, like I really love this. Like how much care goes into preparing a food and like how happy it made the customers. That it really like got me like, okay, I want to do this more. I love that. And it's only, it took me again another couple of years until I was like, oh, right. But like, why is there like always this like full bin of waste at the end of the day? Like, isn't that the food that we're supposed to be making money of? So why is it in a waste? And no one could really give me any answers. I only got like weird looks like, why do you even care? But it, like, you know, it piqued my interest and like again, step by step, I worked more way to actually getting into a kitchen when there was a head chef that was really focused into a food waste. And it wasn't a zero waste restaurant, that wasn't a concept. It was just a guy who really liked working with a different parts of ingredients, not in the name of reducing food waste, but in the name of maximizing the flavor and appreciating the different qualities that the other parts of ingredients have, such as leaves, stems and stalks and etc. There are like different ingredients on their own that can be treated differently. And they're certainly not a waste. And from that point, it just really, I, I just really stick to that idea. And I really love applying that. And you know the rest of the story. Yeah, because uh, one thing that really frustrates me when working with, uh, with food businesses is that when they have an attitude of, well, my bin is empty at the start of the week, it's full at the end of the week but it's okay because the customers paid for it. Uh, it's something that uh, that has been very frustrating that they treat the food waste as being uh, a normal part of what they do. Um, I was talking with a business recently who was doing fruit skewers for several hundred people and they spent the day in trimming and prepping fruit, but there was a lot of waste that came uh, as a result and if you end up with a full bin on the back of it. Now, in some cases, that's avoidable and some cases it's not. But what I liked about your book is that you had some very practical uh, tips and 
things that can be done with skins, with peels, with um, different aspects of the of the food. Um, would there be? Do you have in your experience when you see particular item of food waste? Do you have one that you say, well, this is always the case in every restaurant and every kitchen that I go to? Here's the item that we're going to go on that's going to make a difference to you. That you'd say, look, we can reduce this, we can eliminate this. Mostly, yes, peels and leaves. Like the biggest, the biggest, the most common ingredient you're going to see in every bean are cauliflower leaves, broccoli stalks, potato peels, and all types of greens and tops like parsley tops, carrot tops, kohlrabi leaves, and etc. Anything that is not considered as the main part of the ingredient is gonna go to the bin by default. Even though in some cases it can be up to 50% of the weight of the said ingredient. So you have, pay, you have paid for it already. And that could be a free ingredient in the recipe management system. Because you have already, like, you know, like if you waste the broccoli stem, then, I mean, the, the broccoli stalk is a free ingredient if you use the broccoli florets by default. So that could be used, for example. And those are things that are just repeat and repeat and repeat. Those are some of the most common ones. And is it the reason they don't put the broccoli stems into a salad or into a soup, um, is that because they just haven't thought of it or just because, is, is it mindless prep or is it that they don't actually have another use for it? No one has thought of it. No one told them. You know, like a chef de partie or a junior level chef is rarely comes up on its own with such an idea of doing something unless it has been instructed by the head chef or the senior chef in, in charge. And it's really just no one knows about it. Like no one thinks about it. No one questions it, like in what way you do things. There is a certain standard and certain habits that are being created in the kitchen for even for young chefs. And you just pick up on those. You go through the kitchens and then you end up somewhere working. And then you just use all those habits and experiences that you had previously. And that's how you work. And you don't think about it. You just don't question it like, oh, why am I trimming so much? Why, are, why am I not using this and that? And it's just, that. It's, just a bad, it's just a change of habits. Because there is no such a thing as not having a time for it. As long as you have time for doing your regular mise en place, then you have time you know, to work with any other part of ingredients as well. It always comes down to the habit and how are we how are we used to do things. So it's an education. Certainly. Education, change of habits and just someone questioning. It's sometimes just like one question, one trigger one trigger event that makes you think differently, makes you look at the ingredient differently, like okay like oh that's actually possible for me i can do that that doesn't even cost any money or take me more time because that's like super easy so is that the reason why we have so much food waste because they say that a third of all food produced is wasted is that predominantly prep in the kitchen certainly yeah one of the biggest uh, food waste streams you know, for hospitalities, it's prep waste, actually. It's not buffet, it's not plate waste, it's not because of storage, it's the prep waste. It's how you work with ingredients on your chopping board. It's how you treat the ingredient in the kitchen. That's when the majority of the waste is being created. So it all counts down to a decision because there is some person making the decision that why is that ending up in a bin? And it doesn't have to go there. So making a different decision and creating a new habit over time it's basically, those are the key things that you need to reduce your food waste. Train your chefs. Yeah, train your chefs. Train, train your chefs and give them guidance. Give them, you know, like, there have to be some kind of leadership. Because if no one's holding the team together, then you're not going to sustainably reduce your food waste with an effect if you're only going to reduce it here and there, occasionally. When I have time for it, 
when I know how to use it. You have to create a system and a plan for that. You need to know what exactly you're gonna do with those upcycled items. Otherwise, you are just wasting your time creating an item that you don't know what you're gonna do with. Is there a role for technology in this? In creativity, no. For measuring, yes. You want to get some kinds of numbers and how much food waste you have. What is the what is the biggest stream? What what creates the food waste in your kitchen? Actually, you have to you want to have some kind of idea about that. Now, of course, if you are a small restaurant with only like four or five chefs, you can do that manually. Like you know, like you can look into your bin, you can you can put it on a scale, and then you know how much is in a bin. But if you are a hotel with sixty chefs and seven departments and I don't know how many outlets or like a large chain or any bigger business with lots of chefs that I mean you know like manually measuring a food waste becomes very challenging and difficult so there is certainly a place for softwares or any kind of technology tool that actually does the job for you and show you the numbers at the end so you can just look at the screen and like and same for the recipe management uh, system softwares and tools no it's very important that you know what is the yield of each ingredient what is the wastage of each ingredient and where does the waste actually being produced very good. And tell me the the problem with plate waste, because that's the biggest contributor when it does come to uh, to waste. So to me, there's three different types of waste. There's the pre uh, or prep uh, waste. There is overproduced. So something that might be in the fridge that you uh, didn't use and then it's disposed of. And then the third is when it comes to plate waste, as in uneaten food returned on the plate that comes back as uneaten. What you do and what you teach does it address any aspect of the of the plate waste side of it? Or how can businesses address the plate waste aspect? You need to communicate really good. And in, in the case of a plate waste, the work doesn't stop in the kitchen. You also need to talk to your front of house and the waiters. They 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 are the ones handling the plate. They see exactly what's left on the plate. On top of that, you will of course measure for a certain period of time on what is the biggest contributor on your plate waste. Is there a particular dish, a particular garnish, or one particular item that is constantly being wasted? And it's very important to make that adjustment. I don't believe that there is a chef in the kitchen who is actually happy when there is uneaten food coming regularly back into the kitchen. Like, I mean, that's a waste of your time. You could cook less, you know? And there is multiple drivers in a plate waste as well. It can be because the customer was surprised by the flavors because they aren't well described or communicated through the menu or from the front of house. So, you know, someone who doesn't like garlic and then you're going to give them a, the rest of the vegetables covered in garlic oil that wasn't communicated, you know, like these specific things for them, then that might create a waste. A garnish that is actually doesn't complement the dish itself, then customers unlikely to eat that. And in some cases, it's overly large portions. When you have just way more vegetables or way more, way bigger piece of meat than a customer can comfortably eat in a three courses, three course dinner, for example. You know? So, but that is something that the chefs know, like where, where that comes from. So when you look at the plate and when you look at the waste, what came back on the plate, then you will know what creates that waste. But it's important to focus on that as well and communicate with the front of house so they can talk to the guests about there is this and this being used in that dish. I'm just letting you know in case you are allergic or in case you don't like it, in case your preference is different, and etc. Adjusting the components on the dishes, not putting unnecessary garnish on the plate that is constantly being wasted. There's so many restaurants actually do that, that you put these tiny garnishes on the plate and actually like almost no one eats them. You know, or like handing out bread basket at the beginning of the meal without even asking for it, and then no one's touching that bread. It just goes straight to the bin. 
Right. And just think about that. Like, you know, like how much time could you save in the kitchen actually by not preparing all those items? Like you could use your time way better. Yeah. Yeah. And and the communication, as you said there at the very first point was ask, you have your uh, floor staff, your front of house staff trained to say, was that OK? You didn't like some aspect of it. Why? Why has it been returned, essentially, to get the reasons and then to give that feedback? So it's closing the loop of feedback and then it could be portion control. It could be uh, a cooking issue, could be some issue, as you said, with the, with garnish. You don't know, the, any food waste reducing effort runs through the entire company. It doesn't end in the kitchen. It starts in the kitchen, but it goes through the every step, every touch point that the customers have in that company. So the front of house is the second most important being involved in all those efforts because they can give you really important feedback and they can communicate and they know how to communicate with the customer. Great. And you mentioned in your book uh, a food waste audit. Tell me about that. Yeah, the food waste audit, whether we call it an audit or just a measuring period or whatever we call it, it's just a time for you to measure your food waste. It won't, as I mentioned before, you will want to find out how much food waste you're creating. So you can do that yourself. You can hire someone. You can buy a fancy kitchen scale for that. It, it doesn't matter as long as you get to the numbers. It just find a way whatever works best for you and make sure you get to the numbers. Now, in my opinion, the best idea is to measure your food waste before you even start doing something in the kitchen. So we actually have some real numbers in there. So don't change anything, just measure your food waste, let's say for a week or for two weeks, depends how big the operation is. And then a month, month later, measure it again. After you implemented the changes, after the training has been gone, after you tweaked your dishes or changed the menu or did whatever was necessary for you to reduce your food waste. And then measure your food waste again to see like how much you actually saved or what is the, actually the difference that you created. You know? You want some. You want to have some kind of feedback or some kind of tracking, even if it's only for your inf own information. You will want to have some idea about how much was in the bin and how much is in the bin now. When you say measure it, what do you mean? Is that weighing? Yes. Ingredient by ingredient. T tell me what you mean. So measuring food waste. Uh, if it's a, if it's a prep waste, then yes, that's ingredient by ingredient, and you will want to. Whether if you do it manually, then you're just noting it down. If you do, if you have a software or a technology for that, then that thing does it for you. But you will not, ha you will want to have an information about what does each item do in that bin and why is it in there. In a, in terms of a plate waste, the same thing again. You will want to know like why is that particular item in that bin and could it be somewhere else? Can we use it? You will always have things that are not edible and parts of ingredients that aren't digestible or edible and, and that's okay if you're not focusing on that you're looking at edible food waste that is in a bit same for the spoilage every kitchen has some sort of spoilage and why then you know like you can look at like are we really storing our food correctly do we using like airtight containers maybe you know and things and but you need that kind of feedback and information about every item in a in a, in a bin so you know where to put your focus so so start by first of all making the commitment that this is that you're you're going to start addressing it uh, and secondly then is around getting a baseline start off by saying well this is this is where we're at uh, whether it be good or bad it's where you're at but at least know that it's important to know because it's you know it's important to start from the top to actually reduce where the merch food is created before you start 
doing all the small fancy things with bitten fermenting and etc. and focusing on the small amounts of food waste that don't necessarily have um, any financial impact because they are in such a small amounts or very inconsistent amounts. There is always one big main driver that creates the largest amount of your food waste and that's what you want to reduce before you start with anything else. So by getting your baseline, you have uh, it's very much what's measured is managed. You can measure it. You can then say, well, this is where we're at. Communicate that with your team uh, and then get them to be part of the problem, as in resolving it. Uh, They're going to be getting buy in because you've made the commitment to work towards uh, zero waste. And then they can come up with solutions as to how to address it. Yeah, definitely walk your talk. If you're a manager, you have to do what you say you're going to do. Otherwise, your team's not going to take it seriously. Yeah. You mentioned the 50-50 principle of menu design. Tell me about that. Yeah, the 50-50 principle. Um, it's also in my book, and it's a, it's an idea of creating a dish and then essentially the whole menu around that, that approximately half of all the components on any dish should be long shelf life or batch made items and the other half should be freshly prepared items that can be easily done every day. So if you're serving a fillet of a fish with, I don't know, a sauce or a stock, then the fillet of a fish is going to be prepared on a daily basis because it needs to be fresh. But the stock can be done in batch and be frozen. So now you have two components. One is freshly made, one is batch made. Now you're going to put... Um, fermented fennel on it that's second batch made item that can be done in batch that can be done like once a month you don't need to prepare a daily basis and you're gonna put some fresh herbs on the dish that's gonna be your freshly prepared components on that so now you are looking at approximately 50 to 50 percent ratio in the freshly prepared items on a daily basis and versus the long shelf life items now this can be applied on almost every dish and once that's done, then you will end up with a menu that is roughly half of it can be made in batch and roughly half of it can be on a daily basis. This will significantly reduce your need for the manpower on a daily basis for preparation. <laughs> because now you can have so-called production days in the kitchen when, I don't know, you're going to call it, more, there's going to be more chefs on ship, for example, and you're going to create all these batch made items in that day and then on the other days, you're just going to be preparing your daily items. Or you can just make a one big batch made item a day and the rest of your time can be spent on preparing those freshly made daily items. So keep the fresh fresh. It keeps the fresh fresh. It keeps you organized and you know exactly what you are doing and how much of it you need to do. And it's just important to split it down and focus on the correct, correct thing all the time because there are many things that the quality is not impacted by making it in a, in a large batch. There's so many things that can be kept in a freezer in a perfect condition rather than make it every two days, for example. Yeah, and that has to be attractive for food businesses. Now, going back to your uh, your opening night when you had 300 dishes to prepare, you were still incredibly well organized, but it meant by uh, you, you your staffing was cut to the bone unexpectedly. Uh, but you still survived and you still managed because you had a menu that would that enabled you to function. Uh, and it's no different to now that when there is uh, there is a big shortage of chefs and of talent, skilled labor within kitchens, uh, this is an ideal way to get your menus fully designed. So as uh, it's more of the 
the fresh element. It's only half of the dish that they're then been responsible for where you need uh, a smaller element. Of if you run your menu that way, you know, and then accidentally there's two chefs going sick, then, you know, you, you, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be a real big thing for you because, you know, like, okay, like I have plenty of prep for that and maybe there is one chef is enough to actually prepare those daily items so we are safe. So it's no big deal, you know, you don't have to be running around because of that. And the, it has just so much benefits on every side. Also in the food waste, because you will be able to control your stock in way better, in, in a much better way. You will be able to, you know, like plan and systemize your days and the mission plus way more effectively. The work gonna be streamlined. And essentially, I mean, it's a, most of the cases, the chefs are always happier in the end because they know exactly what needs to be done. And they know that they actually have a time to prepare all these items correctly and have time to focus on that. A chef having time, does that happen? It does happen. <laughs> it, it does, yeah, great, great. Uh, tell me, the, uh, the you, you talk about a lot of uh, things that I, I don't understand when it comes to uh, fermenting and pickling, and I know the concept of it, but this is the 50% batch that you're talking about. When it comes to kitchen equipment, what in order to facilitate the type of menu that you're talking about, what are the key pieces of technology or equipment that people need in the kitchen? Knife and a chopping board. In most cases, Simple. you don't need any specialized <laughs> equipment to reduce your food waste. You can have, sure, I mean, a good blender always helps. Dehydrator comes handy. Mm. And things like, you know, dehydrator is a good idea because it's like, yeah. you know, there is almost no active time from the chef's side. It's all passive time. You throw it in a dehydrator and done and then you take it out either or blend it to a powder or just use it as chips done it, you don't spend active working time if you have a dehydrator and using that to reduce food waste freezer is a good thing to have because it's one of the best ways to extend the shelf life of ingredients but even if you don't you know like every kitchen has different circumstances and different equipment and that not having that equipment is never an excuse to not reduce the food waste because you can literally have just a knife and chopping board and you can reduce your food waste because reducing the food waste it's not so much about reducing it once it happened, but it's about preventing it in the first place. So actually creating your dishes in a way and working in such a way that the food waste does not happen. So you don't need to spend your time with upcycling and creating new products and working so much with like making pesto, salsa, picking, fermenting. It's way easier if you actually don't create those byproducts. Don't peel your vegetables. Don't make the trimmings. Don't trim this and that. Keep it in one piece, use it as it is, and then you don't have to spend your time creating those new products, you don't need space, you don't need the equipment, etc., etc. It's always all about the preventing. Love it. You say that composting is not the solution. Why do you say that? Composting is not giving you any, any return on investment. <laughs> there is no money coming out of compost. You're only putting money inside it, in there. Because if you buy a composting machine, which is fairly expensive, you buy that, it's going to with quite a lot of energies as well, so your bill's gonna go higher. And then you put the food that you bought into that. And where does the money gonna come out of it? It's not gonna come out of it. You know, it's a good solution as a secondary uh, secondary solution. So if you have unedible, inedible food waste that, or lots of spoilage or things that simply can't be safely eaten by humans anymore, then compost is great. That's where it should go. But if the food is edible, then it shouldn't go to the compost. Like you grow the food to be eaten by humans, not by a machine. So it doesn't. Re 
It reduces your food waste in a sense that it doesn't create all the CO2 and the methane when you put it in a general waste. But I mean, putting food in a general waste bin, it should be like illegal at this point. Like it shouldn't even happen. Like if there is so many solutions to actually put your food waste somewhere else in a general waste bin that I sh not even, should, shouldn't even be considered that. But primarily, the edible food waste has to go back to the customer's plate and be sold with a margin because that has the highest return on investment. And that is the reason you have placed the order for the food in the first place. And it goes back to the very first thing you said in the very opening sentence, which was sustainable and profitable. And that's what it comes back it comes back to. You don't buy things to bin them. So uh, it takes a little bit more thought in order to do it. And don't buy the composter as being the solution for it. That's all. Whether you buy the composter, you just have the bin that someone is collecting, you know, it's the same place. You put your food somewhere else where it's not coming back from. And there is no return on investment in that. Even, even if you don't spend money on the composter and just someone collects it and then compost it for you for the biogas or for whatever other thing. If there is edible food that could be sold with a margin and you could profit from that, then it's a waste. Edible food belongs to the humans in the first place. Everything else is secondary. Yeah. A couple of quick fire ones from me from the book, because what I picked up from, uh, from your book is that there's, I don't think there's any chapter that's more than two pages, uh, but the, the level of very simple, easy to understand ways of dealing with the most common types of food waste i'll throw a couple of quick ones and if you can just tell me what you would do with them banana skins pulled pork pulled pork vegan pulled pork yes. with banana skins or this is the no vegan vegan pulled, pulled pork from banana skins tell me more. <laughs> well the banana skin is fibrous you know, it has fibers just like a, a pork shoulder or other pork would have. Chop it down. Use the same spices, the same process as you would treat your pork, as you would cook the pork. Just use banana skins instead of the meat. Same result. The chefs are not able to tell the difference when I did a masterclass with that. No way. They, they, they didn't believe me that it was actually banana. They were convinced that it's pork. Wow. <laughs> Tell me, that, and that's yeah, that's just skin. Skin, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay leftover bread uh, bread crackers uh, herbs make sure you store them correctly in the first place so they are not wasted but if you have to then salsa or pesto pineapple skin it's a tepache it's like a south american or mexican fermented drink from banana skins uh, banana. Oh, it can be done from banana skins as well, but well, from uh, pineapple skins. The core of the pineapple? Same thing. Same. Put it, put it in there, yeah. Lots of sugar content helps with the fermentation. Easy one. Carrot tops. Definitely carrot tops also. It's a umam flavor bomb. Here's a trickier one. Coffee grounds. Mm, make coffee syrup. Coffee syrup? You know, boil it down, boil it again, strain it, reduce it, add some sugar to it, you have a coffee syrup. Or use it to bake your vegetables in that coffee ground if you have a large amount. Then like coffee-baked pastas or coffee-baked celery tastes great, coffee-baked Jerusalem artichokes and etc. Just as you would do with the salt baking, just use coffee grounds instead. Just put it in there. The flavor from the coffee grounds penetrates through the vegetable. Tell me your favorite one because the banana skins, is uh, that's that's good. I love the absolute simple thing and the carrot top salsa is a complete addiction in our household. 
it's just so simple, easy, and so flavorful. <laughs> Carrot top salsa. Love it. Carrot top salsa. How can a business owner get their team to buy into this for there can be a, the carrot and the stick approach. Tell me, what, 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 how would a business owner start by making the by shifting the dial on this? You have to ask yourself first if you truly believe in what you're gonna do. <laughs> because if you don't believe in it and you try to convince someone else about it, they're gonna sniff your intentions. They're not gonna buy. In. <laughs> you have to walk your talk and be convinced about that you actually believe in that food waste reducing idea. And because your team will be looking up to you for guidance and for support and for leadership. Like everyone wants some kind of support or something, you know, like, and if there is no leadership, then it's never going to be them. Unless the sous chef steps up and he's going to take charge of it or someone else rarely happens without support and leadership in the first place. So it's very important. If you want to get anyone on board with any idea or with any change, you're actually there for the team. Because they will have questions, they will have issues, they won't be so sure about it maybe at the beginning. You will have to get them on board with your leadership. Without naming names, can you give me an example of a success story when you when you start working with them and what typically happens or may not happen? Well, what typically happens is is that not everyone is on board right away, of course. There's always there's always people, well, chefs, who just got to question you and like everything that is being done and got to be very skeptical about it. And towards the end, they're like, oh, damn, like, that's really good. Like, oh, like, thank you, like, because it's saving me time. It's, it's more simple. We are actually doing better. Like, the chefs are like, the cooperation is much better because now it's like everything is, you know, interconnected because I'm using this, he's using that, and I figured out why colleague is actually cooler than I thought, and, you know, etc. So it's always, you know, like, when you're making any change and, like, people becoming happier. And to me, like, you know, like, success story is really about when, like, I can see that everyone is on board from the junior to the senior, that even, even the commission chef loves the idea and also the executive chef loves the idea. And that if in the end, like everyone is happy about it, then that is for me more success than actually the numbers that like how much we really reduced and etc. As long as you made some good progress, then that's great. But just make sure that it's something that can be consistently kept up in long term. Because there are many businesses who really jump into that. Oh my God, let me do that. I love that. And three months later, like that. Sorry, I don't have time for that. You know, and they're like, it doesn't matter to me like you know it's not my money but <laughs> you know but but the success is always like when the team is happy when the chefs are really on board with the idea and they're happy to be creating those new habits because those new habits are gonna be reflected in the next workplace and the next workplace and the word spreads and the more food is being reduced and the more chefs know about that and on it goes it creates uh, creates momentum. Uh, people can see the difference, see the result. And again, going back to the point of find your baseline. When you have your baseline and then say, guys, this is where we're at. And then you can get the buy-in or increased buy-in when they can see it starting to go down again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And tell me one thing, because you're talking about people there, you had a challenge in uh, in advance of your, uh, your evening. You did touch on it, that when your apprentice pulled out because... His parents were shaming him for working in the kitchen. That must have been, as we say in Ireland, a kick in the teeth uh, to have something like that happen. 
do you find that there's still an element of that? And that's part of uh, of a bigger topic or a bigger conversation with getting new people, new apprentices into the, 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 the sector to work in the kitchen. I think that parents being involved in the teenager's life is a very Asian thing, I would say. That in lots of Asian countries, that is a big thing, that parents are involved in the life of the child until even late, mid-20s, even 30s that they're actually like making decisions for them. So that is a big thing. I don't see that much happening in Europe. In Europe and in the Western part of the world, it's more the problem that the, the teenager itself is not even interested in getting into the hospital industry in the first place. You know, well, let alone someone pulling him out of it. But, you know, he, he don't even want to get into that. That that was really, I was so upset inside, honestly. Like, I was so upset. Like, I sat down with that kid and I was like talking to him and trying to convince him and he was like, he would love that. But, his parents want him to do whatever, I don't know. And he just didn't show up any longer. And I was like, like, damn, like that kid, like he wanted to do it. And then someone is talking him out of it, mostly based on the facts and the informations that they have seen or collected over the past years. So it's all the things from the past of how the hospital industry works and looks and that they've been pulling him out from it based on their ideas you know like it could be something he could be like great or maybe he is like i don't know you know i'm not in touch with him so if he finds his way back then great but like getting young people into hospital industry is just so important and i think that so many people actually don't think about that and it's honestly like who, who's gonna be working in 20 years in the kitchens like there is not enough young people getting in into the kitchens this is like like who's gonna be doing all the work and you we can't call everyone lazy and that they don't want to work and etc. Of course, I don't want to work eighteen hour long days anymore. Why should I? You know, like when I can get a better paid job when I work eight hours a day and etc. I sacrifice my passion instead, but I can make a better living and save my legs and back from the operation twenty years down the road. You know, <laughs> so all these, all these, you know, like that is very important to change. And that's mostly like the, the older generation that can change for that to actually show the answers. Like, okay, look, like maybe that hobby it was done but there are better ways there are many and always more and more restaurants now lately i've noticed that shifting towards a four-day work week uh eight or ten hour days and like not doing split shifts because there is no life around the split shift and all these you know positive changes that i mean if one can do it then the other can do it because that always proved to be right looking at the history there's always like someone starts something and then the next guy does it, the next guy does it. And then eventually the guy who said that that's not possible, either going to close down or he's going to do it as well. So I be, I'm, I'm very positive about the hospital in the industry. And I believe that like that there's going to be significant changes in the next couple of years. And I'm genuinely excited about that because the change is absolutely necessary to keep actually like the whole industry sustainable. Yeah. And the, the industry will change and adjust and be tweaked in accordance with the lifestyle choices of people, uh, including predominantly their workers, um, because it's about getting that balance between when people want to eat and be served versus when people actually want to work to be able to put the work into it. So, so many examples that I could give you right now. We could be here for another hour. <laughs> but but yeah, you are, you are absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so, it's tell me because I know we could be here for another hour and I'm not going to do that to you. <laughs> but uh, your vision for food businesses, what is it? 
we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna bring back the connection. I think to the food. I think the past couple years we kind of disconnected from the food in a in a bigger sphere of look. If I would describe it that way, that you know, like ordering food from the suppliers, not having a clue where your chicken comes from, and etc. You know nothing about where your food it just comes in a box or in a bag, and they just use it, and they're just like, yeah, whatever. I just order it. I don't want if I need it, and uh, you know, there's this. It just becomes this so industrialized. You know, if we call it industry, but it doesn't have to be like so industrialized in terms of like there's so many middlemen in everything. There is disconnection between chefs like actually don't understand the food and the cooking process and the natural processes in that food. But you just do it because you come here to collect your paycheck and you don't know nothing about the food and just like let me get my job done and serve the customer and then the customer doesn't know what am I exactly eating because the waitress didn't even tell me what am I doing and etc and all of that is like interconnected in a very complex situation where I think that if you change one thing then the slowly the other thing gonna be changing as well so in the end you're gonna end up with this nice way more sustainable and earth-friendly customer-friendly environment so of course, it's always a business that wants to have a profit and makes money, but that can be done in so much more effective and better way than it is being done currently. Correct, currently, as many businesses, yeah. So I really think that like the, the connection will have to like slowly come back to us. That we will like care more about where my ingredient comes from and who is serving it and how is it being served and how is it being treated and how the customer is treated, and the, the, how the chefs are treated, how the ingredient is treated how the suppliers are treated and everything. I think it, we just need to put like way more care into that because in many cases we care so much about the customer experience or literally all the other experience in the entire business is way below that. Great. And tell me, you have an enormous amount of knowledge and I'm sure people listening to us now is is saying this is this is gold dust. So how do, how do you help businesses now and how can our listeners get in touch with you? Well, all I do right now is uh, workshops and consulting for businesses. That's in person. And the second biggest thing I do is the online food waste training for chefs, which where my most of the, my focus goes into that. Because that is something that, you know, like can be scaled infinitely and everyone can have access to the same information at the same time. Great. And tell me, the, uh, to, to, to wrap it up, I guess, that uh, uh, Wojtek, uh, as well as uh, a dedicated chef and the author of Surplus, the Food Waste Guide for Chefs, I think that one of my uh, favorite quotes uh, in your book is, uh, I use my cooking as a means of communication. Food is my language. I, I talk through food and I want to speak. Um, I think that if anything, in this conversation, uh, it's told me uh, that you not only talk to talk, but that you are also well able to walk to walk. Um, and you've started a movement of education for people in the food service and hospitality sector for those personnel. Uh, and I'd encourage our listeners to look into the way that you train others and reducing food waste uh, by using a very simple step by step guide. So um for you and sharing your knowledge like that, I'd like to take my hat off to you um, and say, uh, well done. It's been a pleasure uh, to to speak with you um, and thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. Um, so uh, Wojtek Weg, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. That was episode number three of Food Service Matters. A huge thank you to my guest Wojtek Weg chef and author of Surplus, 
the food waste guide for chefs. That was a thought-provoking chat and I'm going straight home to make a banana peel pulled pork sandwich. If you'd like to continue the conversation on creating a zero waste kitchen or one of the other topics I discussed with Wojtek, let's chat on LinkedIn. Find me, Patrick McDermott, CEO of Digitally. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and watch out for our coming installments. You've been listening to Food Service Matters, the podcast where we explore the challenges and opportunities facing the food service industry today.